Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The title of the sermon, therefore, is God Spoke to You Already. God Spoke to You Already. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Let me read the text. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us and his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, as we come to your word, we do thank you, Lord, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, based upon the scripture alone. Lord, we thank you for those truths, and we thank you for those men and women that have stood for those truths, even to the point of shedding their own blood. Lord, we thank you for that and pray that we could be found faithful to the same task, Lord, as we trust in you alone. Now, this morning, as we are in your word, we pray, Lord, that you would convict us and mold us. And even as Hebrews 4.12 says, that you would use your living word to convict us and to work deep within our hearts, Lord. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Lord. Talk to me. God, will you just speak to me tonight? I need you, Lord. Have you ever prayed or or talked to the Lord in that way? Where you've said, God, talk to me. I need to hear from you. And you're meaning, if only God would directly talk to you, then you would really, really believe him. Have you ever been in any kind of situation in your life where you've been so desperate that you're at a point where, God, if you would just, like you talked to Abraham or how you talked to Samuel when he was a boy, if you would just say, Tom, whatever your name was, Lisa, if he would just talk to me, then I would believe him, and then I would know exactly what to do. God, if you're so real, you're not an idol. If you're a real God, then talk to me. Have you ever had thoughts like that or expressed desires like that? I can imagine here these beloved Christians, these Believers that were somewhat associated with the Old Testament, they were in some way associated with Hebrewism. As we read through Hebrews, we see that for many of them, their possessions were being stolen from them. They'd go visit a Christian in prison. As a result of that, they themselves were being persecuted to the point of many of them were having their very belongings taken away from them. But at the same time, there were religious people that were saying, see, Jesus is not enough. You came to Jesus and your life got worse. So perhaps, in a sense, they were crying out, God, talk to us. Speak to us. What do I do? How do I respond? How, how can I go on? You can look at Hebrews 11. From Abraham all the way down to Samson and all the way down throughout that whole passage, the Hall of Heroes. Most of them had difficult lives. They didn't have easy lives. Our life is not necessarily easy, and therefore there can be in our heart this desire, God, why don't you just speak to me? So this morning, then, I'm going to sum up this passage, and this is the main point. All the others will be supporting points. The main point is, if you're looking for a special word from God, then look to the person and work of Jesus. 
the Son of God. If you're looking for a special word from God, then look to the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we will unfold this by four interrelated subpoints. This is the main point. That if you want a special word from God, then look to the Son of God, who is Jesus Christ. And then we'll unfold that with these four subpoints. And really, we'll see how far we get. Hopefully, we can finish the whole sermon. But it's really the fourth point that has the most elaboration. But there are some other points here that we need to discuss. And the first then point is this. The first sub-point is, maybe this morning you would truthfully say, I'm not really looking for a special word from God. I'm saying that the main point, and we'll see even of this text, is basically that if you want a special word from God, look to the Son of God. But maybe you would say this morning, Tom, to be honest, I'm not really looking for a special word from God. I imagine this letter of Hebrews was written like a sermon, Hebrews 13.22 says. And so this would have been read and maybe even preached. And so it says in verse 1, if you look, I'm sorry, verse 2, it says, In his last days has spoken to us, God has spoken to us, and he spoke to us long ago. There could be some people in the congregation that would say, I'm not really looking for a special word. Now, there could be different reasons for that. Perhaps in the past, you've asked God, God, being in this terrible situation that I am in, would you please speak to me? And he never did. Have you asked God, God, speak to me? If you're real, God, speak to me. And you know what? He never spoke to you. And so you got bitter. And maybe you decided, God either doesn't care or he's not real. Or maybe you've never looked for a special word from God because you don't really care. I mean, I didn't care for 13 years. I could care less. I cared about marijuana. I cared about rock music and comic books. But I didn't really care about God. I cared about football. I did care about Larry Zonka. Mercury Morris, but I didn't really care about God. I was apathetic. So you could be in that situation where you're not really looking for a special word from God. It says in verse 1 that God is not silent. God spoke long ago. In verse 2 it says, has spoken. But maybe you don't really care. Well, I would say in response to that, that this text is especially for you, because since God is the creator and the sustainer and judge of the whole universe, it's important that we hear what he has to say. And the one that has the last word is God. And the one that will speak to you on that day of days will be God himself. For all of us. God will speak to you in a very audible voice, face to face. Perhaps not today. Perhaps it will be today as we cross that river of death and meet him. There is a second supporting point that I want us to consider. Again, what I am saying that this text is saying to the people that would hear this the first time and then to us is if you're looking for a special word from God, look at the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We said, first, maybe you're not really looking to hear from God. Second, maybe you would say, okay, but God speaks to me all the time. God speaks to me all the time. Outside of his written word, you mean. Or maybe you've heard people say that, friends or relatives. I have. I've had people tell me not too long ago that, praise God, he doesn't just speak to me in the Bible. But he speaks to me also outside of the Bible, all the time. 
And I would say, certainly, Psalm 19 says that God, all the time, through natural creation, through the stars, the sun, the mountains, the snow, the rain, the beautiful sunshine that we had during autumn for so long, through all of that, God is speaking and preaching about his glorious wonders. So certainly God speaks that way. There's also a sense in which God speaks to our hearts inside of us. Galatians 4, 4 and Romans 8, is it verse 14 or 15? Says that the Holy Spirit is within our hearts crying out what? Abba, Father. There is a love from God that the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5, communicates to us that we are being loved by God the Father and that we, by God's love, really overwhelming our hearts that we feel and give back to God saying, Abba, Father, Dad, Daddy. That's a true communication from God to you and I, to believers. That's what we feel. There's also a sense in which God speaks to us, right? When you memorize the word, you've hidden the word in your heart. And you may be going through a day, there could be a temptation, there could be a blessing that you have, there could be some kind of interaction that you have with somebody and you're witnessing and verses that you've memorized and meditated upon, they come back up into your mind. That is, in a sense, in a real sense, God is speaking to you through his written word as the Spirit of God is working in you, reminding you of these verses that you've memorized. That's a true way that God, I think, is speaking to you. But there can be also other means, I think, that one is wrong and one is maybe not the wisest. There are some miraculous means at times that people will seek to have in order to say that God is speaking to them. Maybe some kind of sign, some kind of mystical, fantastical happening. I've shared with you in the past that I was at a Phil Driscoll concert. He used to play trumpet, beautiful trumpet uh, player. But at this one conference, this one music conference, he began to uh, pound the, the platform and say, we want a sign. We want a sign. We want a sign. And the whole congregation, we want a sign. We, and I was, I was almost like, I'm going to run out of here. It's going to be like a sign of Noah. Jesus said a sinful and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And I I think what he was trying to say is that he wanted to see that God work in a a deep and powerful way. I I imagine is what he was trying to say. But we have to be careful because it could be God has and is working in a deep and powerful way far greater than some sort of miraculous sign. We can want some kind of spiritual zap to happen when God can be working at a deep and a profound level already. But there's also, I think, this other way which we can look for a special sign from God. And though maybe it's a little bit humorous, maybe it will help us. I, For a while now, I've wanted a dark blue Toyota 4Runner. And I've, I've even prayed about it. You have not because you ask not. Lord, I even said, it doesn't have to be brand new. It can be five years old. So a few weeks ago, dropped Lisa off at the airport. We're coming back, and on the right side, past this dark blue, beautiful forerunner. You know, had had this black trim. Man, it was nasty. I was like, look, kids, I think God's giving me a sign. I prayed, and I had talked to the kids about it, and it passed me. Right then was when the drunk driver hit us. So then, if I remember right, I think my kids said, yeah, that was a sign, all right. (laughs) Big, fat no. But then, last night, we went to pick up Lisa from the airport, and we saw a black Toyota 4Runner with black, you know, like this dark black trim, saw a green one, a white one, and this dark red one. So then I knew that God was saying, Tom, broaden your options from dark blue. 
And at times, I think if we're not careful, we can look at God's providence and we can begin to interpret God's providence as, I think it was Thomas Watson would say, we can treat God's providence like a Bible instead of like a journal. And we can interpret God's providence however we want to. It can, you know, God is saying yes. God is saying no. God wants me to have each of those cars that passed me last night. And so we can begin to interpret and say that God is speaking to us in ways that he may not be actually speaking to us. So maybe you might say God is speaking to you all the time. In some ways, that's true. But in some ways, <laughs> it's not true. Be careful. So then, third point. Focus on the loud and clear message of God that he has already spoken to you that keeps resounding with brilliant effectiveness. Keep focused on the message that God has already spoken to you that is resounding with clarity and profound effectiveness. And that is the Son of God. We cry out, God, speak to us. Lord, give me a sign. Show me that you're real. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave you his only son, that all the ones who believe in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. God, speak to me. And he has said, here's my son, Jesus Christ, the son of God. God has spoken. And he's spoken to us in his sufficient word, Scripture alone, in and expounding on and displaying by his grace through faith alone, Christ alone, all to his glory alone. There are many pressures that seek to take us away from the Lord and from Christ. But he has already spoken when you look back at verse 2, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. And when you look at this passage, these first three verses, there's actually chiasms here. There's anisance that's here. There's alliteration. The first verse itself has, I think, uh, in Greek, 10 or 11 terms. And five of them begin with the letter pi, with the letter uh, P. That's a type of alliteration and poetry. It's a very intricate sentence that's composed in the Greek text, drawing attention, however, all of it to this clause, has spoken to us and his son. That is the main clause. And again, he's saying this to people that are going through tremendous trials, and they are being pressured whether because they don't have a home anymore to call their own, or because somebody is attacking their faith. They're being tempted to go back to Christ, uh, to go back to their old religion. And so here, the word of God is being given to them, telling them to hold on to Christ, cling on to Jesus. That's why you have in chapter 4, verse 14, hold fast our confession. And you have this throughout the whole book of Hebrews. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And especially the day and age which we live in, it it will get worse. It, it can momentarily get better, but when we read the scripture, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we know what the final last days will look like. So like the Hebrews, we're being encouraged to Look at what God has already spoken to us. And that is Jesus is supreme. Jesus is sufficient. The Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Hold on to Him. Further, especially here, and we're on the, again, the third subpoint. Further, when we look at Hebrews, and we'll see this more and more if we go through the book of Hebrews, but it can be tradition or even a type of Old God word, a type of God word religion, which can look at times appetizing or which can look 
credible or which can draw us back kind of a, a lot of external godliness external only or piety and there is a movement even within the US and other churches to go back to a type of either English Anglism or Roman Catholicism of going back to a kind of a high church kind of mentality that is of a lot of perfunctionary deeds and routine. And if you have this, then you have something which is of more substance. And that's similar to what's going on in the book of Hebrews. Is that there are people that are encouraging these beloved Christians. You talk about knowing Christ, but how has knowing Christ helped you? Are you better off or worse off? You lost your home. You lost your money. Life's not going that well for you. If you would just say that Christ alone, that salvation is not just through Christ. If you would just say that the Lord, the Lord can be Jesus and Caesar. That it can be, you, you can keep old covenant Judaism kind of a rabbinical, you know, kind of salvation by works, not the, the true Judaistic system, but if you can have kind of the Old Testament shroud, if you can have that and Jesus at the same time, isn't that okay? I was watching a, an interview recently with Martin Larry Jones and Joan Blackwell. I would recommend you to watch it on YouTube. Just Martin Larry Jones and Joan Blackwell. And he's a medical doctor and a very brilliant man. But she kept pressing, aren't you being intolerant? Basically, she was saying, you're very exclusive because you're saying that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And you're being very intolerant. And in a very polite and gentle and biblical way, he said, correct. Jesus is the only way, the way, the truth, and the life. And so you and everybody else needs to repent of their sins and trust him. There can be many pressures on our life. There were on these Christians that he was writing to, to say that, you know what? You can have your Jesus, that's fine. But at the same time, practice a a type of salvation by works. You know, I've talked to Roman Catholics, I've talked to... Hindus and Muslims and Mormons and so forth. And nobody has ever ever gotten upset with me if I've just said, I believe in Jesus. Nobody. Hindus, Roman Catholics, Muslims, Mormons. Yes, we believe in Jesus too. But if you begin to say that salvation is only through Jesus, only by grace alone, only through faith alone, then whoa, 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 whoa. And that's what the book of Hebrews is protecting, especially by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. Because he alone is supreme. He alone is the Son of God. And these first verses will expound on that in a very incredible way. Now, when you look at verse 1... You can see what the text says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways. Where it says many portions and many ways, even there, it's the Greek letters P, P, and P, P. Pi, 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 pi. It's a way that would draw the reader's attention because it's being read or, or preached to them. And it's basically the idea that from Moses to Malachi or from... The burning bush, all the way to a type of, like, like Balaam's donkey. All these different ways and figures and prophets, all of them proclaimed God's word to you, but they weren't the final word. They were not bad, but they were incomplete. If I had a, a bowl and I had a chocolate chip cookie dough mix in there, let's say you had the bowl. You were making chocolate chip cookie dough mix. Let's say you made it for me. I'm not saying, I'm not asking you to do that. But let's say you did that. And you gave it to me. But you failed to put in chocolate chips. What would I do? 
I would eat it because it would be delicious. I would even say, don't cook it. I would eat it raw. I, I would eat it raw. However, it would be incomplete. And so that's, in a sense, the Old Testament. It's not bad. It's good. It's delicious. But it's not complete. It's not the final word. The final word is Christ. And that is what the Holy Spirit is saying to these believers here because they would be, they are being tempted. The, that, that old word, and again, these people that were teaching the old word, the old covenant, had their own spin on it and were saying that salvation is primarily by works. God is saying that that was, that itself, the, by works is wrong, but the Old Testament itself, though, though good, is incomplete now without Christ. Because God has spoken his final word. There's a beautiful album by Michael Card. Have you guys heard it? The final word? Great album. I mean, it's now over 20 years old, I think. (laughs) The final word by Michael Card. Great, great album. And this is basically what this verse is saying. That God has given his final word. He has spoken to you and to I in a very loud and clear and effective and brilliant voice. And it's Jesus Christ, my son, the son of God. It's the best thing he could ever say. Now, have we considered those points with the remainder of our time then? We'll look at this fourth sub-point. We're saying... That there is, I think, and in a certain sense, it's not necessarily bad because we're created in the image of God, right? I think all of us, in a certain sense, should be saying, God, speak to me, right? Because we're made in the image of God. And the old theologians and philosophers in the past would say that we have a heart-shaped vacuum for, for God. But we can make God into our own image, and call the things God that are not God. And so we've looked at three subpoints of if you're looking for a special word from God, then look at Jesus Christ and His Word. Look at the Son of God if you're looking for a special word from God. And we've considered three subpoints. Now the fourth subpoint is what does this mean though that God has spoken to us in His Son? What does this mean? Well, I think the text itself is going to display this. If you look at verses 2 and 3, it says in verse 2, God has spoken to us in the last days. He's spoken to us in his Son. And then it talks about who the Son is and what the Son has done. And then the rest of Hebrews... to different degrees and in different dynamics is going to elaborate on this even more. How has God spoken to us in His Son? God has spoken to us in His Son by the Son's work and the Son's person. That's how God has spoken to us. Generally, and even mainly, God has already plainly and sufficiently spoken to you and to me by the, the gift of his son. It's called a gift, right? For the wages of sin is, but the free gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a free gift that God has given to us that we can't earn our deserves. But now let's detail this out. And if you look at the text, it's going to be detailed out on this Son of God. Again, what, what this text is saying is we have this need, and it's not necessarily bad, but we have to focus this need on on what's true. That is, that is we have a desire, even a need. To, God, speak to me. I, I, I need you to speak to me in my situation. could be... A marriage, it could be job, it could be work. Maybe you're a man or a woman and you're looking for, you're single, you're looking for a spouse. The, the, the first word in all these different areas, the first word, the foundational word that you need to hear, beginning, middle, and end is Jesus Christ and who he is. I've been married for 23 years. What do I need to hear about how to love my wife, 
My kids now are 12 and a half. What do I need to hear primarily foundationally about how to raise my kids? Well, primarily foundationally, I need to hear about Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done. That is the starting point, the foundation. And that is a foundation that we never, never, ever leave, ever. I think that's why you have in Ephesians, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. But let's look at these different details of who the Son of God is. First, he is not inferior. Note it does say, verse 1, God, but then it brings up the Son two different times throughout the whole New Testament and throughout Hebrews, here and there, it will talk about the Son, the Son of God. Is the Son of God inferior to God the Father? Sometimes cults will say that the Son is inferior to the Father, not as God, as much as God the Father is. And here, right away, it says in these last days that God has spoken to us in his Son. And if we're not careful, our mind can go into a type of realistic, eternal generation. That is, that God the Father produced God the Son. That would be unbiblical and heretical. There was never a time when God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, was not and the biblical mindset, when it talks about son, especially in relationship to God, but other things as well, it's not primarily talking about what God produced, but of the same essence and of the same nature. That is the idea of sonship in the Bible as it relates to the second member of the Trinity. This is why you have Psalm 2, which has great significance for our passage and for other passages in the book of Hebrews. In Psalm 2, it says in verse 7, I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 12, uh, kiss the son. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Throughout the Psalms, who do you take refuge in? And when you take refuge in him, you are blessed. Who is it? The Lord, Yahweh. Yet in Psalm 2, it talks about the Son. Kiss the Son. Take refuge here in the Son. Verse 7 says, he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, what is that talking about? Well, that's talked about and made clear in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33. Acts 13, verse 32 and 33. And we preach to, uh, Acts 13, 32. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Sometimes we'll take the incarnation and say the incarnation, that's basically what it means that Jesus was the Son. No. Actually, when the Bible looks at God begotting the Son, it's not that God produced him, but rather that title is given to the second member of the Trinity, to Yeshua, when he resurrects from the dead, because he proved, he validated that he was God. That's the idea of Acts chapter 2, verse 7. Of I'm sorry, of Psalm 2, verse 7, and Acts 13, 33. That is, that this idea of son is not son in terms of a biological reproduction, but rather it's the idea of that Jesus had the same essence of God like God the Father has, which was demonstrated by his resurrection. So here, these believers are being encouraged by the Holy Spirit. Don't think of Jesus as less than God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are co-equal and, and, and Godhead. It's not God the Father is number one. God the Son is number two. 
Holy Spirit's number three. That's, no. They are all co-equal, co-eternal, all share the same attributes. One God, three persons. Jesus Christ is not inferior as God the Son. Same status. Same essence. Secondly, not only is he not inferior, he's the rightful owner. He's the rightful owner of the universe. Look at verse 2. Whom he appointed heir of all things. That is, God the Father appointed God the Son as heir of all things. He has, he will, and is, and will own the whole universe. Now, by his very nature, right? By his very nature, as being God, God the Son owns everything. But what does scripture say? He humbled himself. He left the glories of heaven and took on human nature, but without sin. And he came into his own, and his own people received him not. But he humbled himself to the point of being an embryo in a womb. That is so mysterious. Jesus Christ, God, the Son of God, eternally God, became an embryo lived inside of Mary's womb and yet lived a perfect life, obeyed his father's will in such a way that he was able, and we'll see this at the end of verse 3, he was able to uh, to earn what we could never earn. And that is to sit at the right hand of his father and majesty. So what I'm saying that this passage is saying is that God, Jesus Christ, God the Son, by his nature, inherits the whole universe. He owns everything. But not only that, he became a human, a real flesh and blood and human, and lived such a fantastic, incredibly perfect, godly life that by what he did, he inherited the whole universe. That means that he owns everything, all things. And we see this in, in many places, right, throughout Scripture. And, like, for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in chapter 3, it talks about even a blessing for us. You can see it at, at verse 23. And you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God But verse 21, so then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the word of the world or of life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. That's incredible. That is that Christ inherits all things. He owns all things. He has rights and power over all things. Some commentators would even say this is pointing to the fact that he, he is king, king over the whole universe. But in Christ, we inherit all things. He earned it by his perfect life. We are gifted it freely in him. And that's amazing grace. And this would speak to these beloved believers because they had placed their faith in Christ. Some of their loved ones were in prison. They went to visit their loved ones in prison. And then they too were arrested. Or they had all of their belongings robbed from them. And they had nothing. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you know somebody and they were mistreated and they had nothing and then you went and you loved them and then you go back home and your home's gone? Can't go inside of it? Maybe you're going to be arrested. My reaction would be, not only do I not have a dark blue Tardo 4 runner, I don't have the car that I had. I don't have my computer or a cell phone. What am I going to do? And I think this text, the Holy Spirit through this text would say, though it may not look like it now, you have the whole universe. It's yours. And this is not 
unusual. It's not ridiculous. Even Moses, it says in Hebrews 11, gave up all the surpassing pleasures, all the riches of Egypt, because his eyes were looking where? At Christ and at that, that celestial city. He was looking not at the inheritance that he had, which would have been equal to billions and billions of dollars. For him, that was rubbish. He was looking toward the eternal riches of what he had in Christ and in heaven. His eternal inheritance that was given to him and is given to us through Christ. Because Christ owns everything. Since Christ owns everything and he even earned it, then what do we have to fear about stuff? It all belongs to God. You know, all this stuff of this life is all going to be burned up and ruined eternally forever. But Christ owns all things. Not only is he not inferior, not only is he the inheritor or the rightful owner, he's also the creator. Look at the text. Verse 2, also he made the world. And you might have a little letter, a number by the term world in your text that leads you to your margin. And it should say literally ages. The Greek word for world is what? You guys know? I'm sure some of you know. Cosmos. This is not the word here. This is the word ionios. Ages. It's a little bit more comprehensive. It's the idea, and I'm, I'm not sure why the translators said world, maybe because they didn't want to confuse us, but I would have put ages in the text and maybe an explanation in the margin. The idea of ages is that he created the whole universe, past, present, future, the forever, forever, and old earth and old heaven, new heavens and new earth, micro and macro, not just the world. Maybe they could have said worlds. He created all the worlds, all the stars, all the planets, everything. All the angels, all the demons, Satan and Mike, everything he created, absolutely everything. And what's interesting, it says, through him, he made the world. That is, it's pointing out that God the Father is, it's similar, it's like God the Father being the architect and Jesus Christ being the builder. God the Father had the plan and God the Son used the power. And it says in Genesis chapter 1, it's at verse 3, that, or verse 2, that the Spirit of God was there and it was like a super, superintending Spirit the whole time also with God the Father and God the Son in the creation of the world. God the Father's plan, and it was with adoration and respectfulness to the Lord, it was the muscle of God the Son. In fact, if you look at Hebrews 4.11, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, know what it says. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory. This is talking about, right, the, the Lamb of God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. That is what the Spirit of God is communicating to these believers is that, yes, Jesus Christ is Savior. But Jesus Christ is not a Savior that is dead on a cross. It's not the cross and there's a Jesus on the cross, period. It's much more profound, much more beautiful than that. We worship a risen Savior, but a risen Savior who created the entire universe, and not because of necessity for himself, but out of love, he gave his life for all people that would trust in him. Died and rose again. The creator became the crucified, became the resurrected Savior. And so that's why the Spirit of God is saying to these believers and to us, cling on to Christ. Yes, he's Savior, but he's also the Creator. So cling on to him. Who else can say, truthfully, I made the world? Did Moses make the world? No. Did Abraham make the world? 
No. Did Michael, Gabriel, did, did Satan make the world? No. No. All of their power, every angel, every prophet, it's all derived finite power. God's power is not derived from any other place but God himself. And so this text is saying that that power belongs to God the Son. So you want God to speak to you, he's spoken to you. In Jesus Christ, he's God. Not only that, but he's also, if you keep looking here at this text, he's the perfect representative of God. And he's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. If you were to, with your own eyes, If you could, if I could, without being immediately burned up and our eyes of flesh, if you were to look at God, the whole Godhead, the the most brightest part of that light that you would see, you know, have you, don't, kids, don't do this. You've tried to look at the sun, right? You try to look at this, just, just for a moment. Ow! Right? I mean... Just, okay, it hurts. Don't do it, kids. I'm not saying do that. It can, ow, ow. Well, this text is saying that, that brightest part of the, the glow of the light, that is God the Son. It's a picture of the Shekinah glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God, well, that's Jesus. As bright as God can be, that's who Jesus Christ, God the Son, that's who he is. It's not saying that God the Son is greater than the Father. It's saying that God the Son is equal to God the Father. In fact, so much so that next it says, that the text says the exact representation of his nature. There's no Greek term for really exact that's there. Rather, it's the idea of an impress or a stamp that someone might have. It's saying that the express image, that, that, that perfect image of God the Father is God the Son. And when it says here, if you look at your text, when it says representation of his nature, representation is the Greek word basically the way that you would almost pronounce it is character. That's almost how you would exactly pronounce It's almost spelled exact same. It's where we get our English word character from. This is saying that this text, that that very brightness of all that God is, that's Jesus. And Jesus is also the, the, the very representation of the character of God. That's Jesus. This is why Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the, you've seen the Father. And so in this way, the Spirit of God is convincing these believers, don't give up Jesus. Keep clinging on to Christ. All that God is, is in Jesus. So much so that even when Jesus was on earth, that all that he did was a perfect representation of God the Father. If you've seen Jesus, then you've seen the Father. Not because God the Son is God the Father. No, that's not true. But because God the Son perfectly represents God the Father. We're made in God's image, but we don't perfectly image God because we've fallen. There's only one that perfectly images God, and that's Jesus Christ, God the Son. And we need salvation because all have sinned and fallen short of that glory of God. But God the Son perfectly glorifies God and God the Father. Not only is he the perfect representer of all that God is, he's also the sustainer. Maybe you feel that you can't go on in life. That is with Christ. Life, again, and I'm bringing up life is hard because in the book of Hebrews, as you read on toward the end, the believers are going through a, a difficult time. Life is difficult. 
It's glorious. It's fun. It's a blessing. But it's also hard. And at times we can think the whole universe is spitting out of control and my life is spitting out of control. And God is writing to these believers and to you and I, and he's saying this in verse 3, and upholds all things by the word of his power. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Now it's talking about Christ. It's talking about God the Son, the one that causes all things to be upheld, the one who carries all things to their predetermined destination is Christ. Christ is the sustainer. And note, he does it by his power. He does it by, you can see that in verse 3, he does it by his might, by by his strength. Everything is being upheld and carried by God the Son. That means that it wasn't that the Father goes, here's a perfect plan, blueprint of how I'm creating the universe, God the Son. Now you make it. And so God the Son says, okay, yes, uh, God the Spirit, come on. Okay, we're going to do this, 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 this. Okay, we got it. Make the world. And then he goes on and, and does something else. That's a deistic type of view where God creates the world, puts in some principles, and leaves it. That's not true. Rather, this verse is saying that God, specifically God the Son, the whole universe, macro and microverse, has been and is being held together by Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Colossians 1.17 says all things are upheld, are being caused to stand by Jesus Christ, God the Son. All the different molecular glue so that atoms all stick together. It's that constant power of Christ. Even if you look at this text, look back at verse 3. He upholds all things by the what? Word. It's not logos, it's rima. It's the idea of a specific utterance. It's more this idea that now God the Son is giving specific attention since the creation of the world, even till right now, even to the end, specific attention, detailed attention, so that every molecule is performing exactly the way that God the Son wants it to perform. And if God the Son were to say, you know, I'm going to take a break. We'd all just disintegrate. We're created. He is the creator. We are not. He holds all things together by the specific, detailed attention, even creative, sustaining utterance of his powerful word. The word of God is alive and active, talking about the written word. Because it's spoken by God, God the Son, whose word is supremely powerful and causes all things to stand. And so God then is telling you and I, look, don't. Don't back away from Christ. There are going to be times, young people, in your life where you feel, you know what? A life of sin and a life without Christ looks more appealing than following Christ. Because I follow Christ and, you know, bad things maybe happen. And following Christ doesn't necessarily mean at this moment I get the whole universe and everything is peachy and creamy and and rosy. It, It doesn't. But the one that holds and causes the whole universe to stand together has a plan, has a purpose, and can and will uphold you all the way until that end when we are in the beautiful celestial city of glory for eternity. And so we keep on clinging to Christ. Not only is he the sustainer, the perfect representer, the creator, He's the inheritor, the rightful owner. He's not inferior. He's also the victorious cleanser. Victorious cleanser. Look at the end of verse 3. The main idea in verse 3 is he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When did he do that? Basically after his redemptive work, when he had made purification of sins. But the main idea here the main verb, the finite verb, is there at the end. He sat down. He finished his work. He did that when, because of, he died on the cross, cleansing all the sinners that would trust him. 
He is the victorious cleanser. His successful high priestly work, in other words, leads to his exalted position. Again, he left his glorious throne, came down to earth, went to the cross, died on the cross, purifying and cleansing the stain of sin from all who would trust him, rose again, he ascended into heaven, and God gave him back his rightful victorious place because he succeeded in his mission. And his mission was to cleanse sinners from all their sin. For all those that trust him alone. When he had made purification of sins. You're familiar, of course, with 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to, to cleanse us. Isaiah, I think in chapter 1, says that we're dirty with sin from the top of our head all the way down to our toes. And though our sins be as red as scarlet, would you say that you're dirty with sin? Yes, I am too. I I don't stand in myself clean. Though one of my favorite songs is by Petra, and it goes, I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) I want to. Clean, clean before my Lord. But we're clean not because of sacrifices that we make in our life. We're not clean because we go to church, we, we read the Bible, I reformed my life, I haven't lied, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. We're clean because of Jesus. Because of his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection. And so we trust him and our sins are cleansed. And this, beloved, is good news because the truth is, you know me, some of you know me greater than others, and I'm a sinner. I'm redeemed, I'm a saint, but I still sin. But there are things in my past that I can't change. I wish I could. I would if I could, I can't. There are things you did in your past, you can never change them. Ever. But they can be covered and they can be cleansed. Those sins can be covered and they can be cleansed and you and I can be as white as snow. And that's the good news of the gospel and that's what the Spirit is saying to these beloved believers here and saying to you and I tonight, it's Jesus Christ and his work on the cross that cleanses us. And it's so effective, God said, sit down, work is done. Once and for all. That's the idea. Once and for all. Christ is sitting down. Atonement, his purification, done deal, once and for all. So when you get to heaven, it's not going to be Tom. (laughs) You got to work it off, man. It's done. I'll be resting. I'll be working not for my salvation. I'll be working out of my salvation. The work for my salvation, for your salvation, is done. All that cleansing work is done. And so that's why we say, hallelujah, praise God, thank you, Jesus. His work is done. If God were to say, why should I let you in to my kingdom today? I'd say, Jesus did the work, he's sitting down. I didn't do anything. Even the faith that you that I had, you gave it to me. Thank you, Lord. It's because of Jesus. And so the Spirit is encouraging these believers. Don't back up from Christ. Don't go further than Christ. Stick with the Son of God. He is supreme and He is sufficient. Trust Him. These last days, in many ways, are crazy. Now, the last days, you can see, it talks about long ago. Sounds like Star Wars. Long ago. In these last days, well, last days started with the incarnation of Christ and will go up until Christ returns. Are we in the last days? Certainly. Are we in the last days of the last days? (laughs) Seems like it. Seems a little bit crazy. What are we going to do? We, we might cry out, you know, times again. I hope not. I hope they get better. But times could again, you know, get worse. And we could want to hear a word from God. God, speak to me. I'm hearing, it's the Chinese. 
It's the Russians. It used to be the Muslims. Those Muslims! Then it was the First it was the Russians. Then the Muslims. Then the Chinese. The virus. It's, dude, all these different enemies. All these different things. What do I do, Lord? Cling to Jesus. God has spoken to you. He's spoken to me. God the Son is supreme. God the Son is sufficient. Cling to Jesus. If you're wanting a special word from God, he's given you a special word. The word is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is sufficient and supreme. Trust him. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us and your Son. We thank you that you're not silent. You've given us your written word and you've given us the word made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ. And so we say thank you. We give you the glory. May we trust you and cling to you, Lord Jesus, always in all things, for all things, Lord. Thank you. Amen.